Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the American History Podcast. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Brian Ballow. And I'm Ed Ayers. Well, I want to start with a really interesting article that I have right on hand here, and I want to share it with you guys. Oh, great. Yeah, I've read it already. <laughs> <laughs> I I doubt that, Brian. I do. Oh, I have to say. Come on, have a little faith in me. <laughs> have you read the August sixth, nineteen oh five edition of the Chicago Inter Ocean? Uh, well, you got me there, Joanne. I can't say I've read. <laughs> I, I read the week before exactly. that one, but I, I read the synopsis. Oh, dang. <laughs> well, I did not think anyone would have read it, and I've even found someone to do a dramatic reading of it for you. You think of everything, Joanne. I do. Miss Annette Kellerman, the Australian swimmer who last week made an unsuccessful but nevertheless heroic attempt to swim across the English Channel, is receiving considerable attention. The so-called athletic American girls who are visiting her have given Miss Kellerman little rest. They are constantly asking her what they should and should not do to become great swimmers. Miss Kellerman's reply invariably is, practice, 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 and take good care of yourself. Back in 1905, Australian swimmer Annette Kellerman was the first woman to attempt to swim the English Channel. Uh, Swimming the Channel is very difficult, depending on the currents. This is historian Christine Schmidt. She says that Kellerman was in the water for 10 and a half hours before the weather compelled her to quit. And it would be 21 years before a woman, an American, would successfully complete the swim. I can't imagine what it would be like uh, to swim the Channel without the knowledge that we have now of what you could expect uh, from such a swim. Apparently, according to her memoirs, the men were allowed to swim naked uh, and they were covered in seal fat, but she actually had to wear a one-piece swimsuit, which apparently chafed and made it very difficult for her to swim as well. There's something I should quickly clarify here, which is that around the turn of the century, there was a difference between bathing and swimming. Bathing was really very much about either for hygiene, for therapeutic reasons, or purely recreational, whereas swimming was actually about sport and the sort of self-propulsion of the body through water. There were women who were competitive swimmers, but they mostly competed in indoor pools, not outside. The beaches were purely for recreation, and uh, in these public spaces, women were expected to be covered from top to toe. So it would have been like uh, an overdress with bloomers, stockings, bathing cap. Uh, Sometimes they also still wore corsets and even shoes into the water. Uh, These garments were all made out of either a wool, cotton or or silk, but they were very, very heavy. As you already know, Kellerman was a competitive swimmer, not a competitive bather. So she wore a one-piece suit that a man would have worn. That one-piece bathing suit along with her speed, endurance, and upbeat demeanor, attracted a lot of attention, and she became a real advocate for the sport. She had this, from a very early period in her life, uh, this really strong belief in the importance of uh, physical health and well-being, and the importance of, of, of being fit 
and being physically fit. And she really believed that swimming was one of the best ways to achieve this form of fitness. At the London Hippodrome, Kellerman entertained audiences by demonstrating swimming strokes and diving into a huge tank. She eventually took her act to the United States. She'd heard great things about vaudeville, and she knew that uh, she represented novelty and spectacle, especially packaged in a woolly one-piece swimsuit. The New York Times, Wednesday, May 1st, 1907. Among the passengers was Miss Annette Kellerman, the Australian swimmer. She was the only one who found the delay of getting in rather tedious. About the time that the stern anchor chain of the ship was being loosened yesterday morning, she had found out about how far it was to the nearest land, which somebody told her was 18 miles. She promptly went to the captain and asked if she might be permitted to swim in. The request was refused, and with pouting lips, the good-looking swimmer spoke of her chagrin when she had reached the pier. Why, I almost swam the English Channel once, she said, and you know what that is. Kellerman was billed as the Australian mermaid, and she amazed audiences in New York and Chicago. Springfield Journal, Thursday, May 23rd, 1907. The Los Angeles Times, Sunday, June 16th, 1907. There are no mermaids now except in variety shows and fairy stories, but Annette Kellerman, the champion woman swimmer of the world, comes pretty near being one. She is almost as much at home in the water as on dry land. Miss Kellerman's fancy diving so absorbs the spectators that when, as a finale, Miss Kellerman plunges from her springboard and strikes the water in a sitting position, about two tubs of water are splashed out over the sides of the tank upon the people sitting in the front row. But they invariably take it good-naturedly. She is of practically perfect physique, with tapering wrists and ankles, olive complexion, and gray eyes, which light up a winsome face. No complaint has been made to the management for the trick. And even though in vaudeville they would be used to seeing women in states of undress, uh, this is very different. And I think this is also an important part of Kellerman's popularization of the swimsuit is that it was really about physical health and well-being and the idea of wearing a piece of clothing that was purely functional and that would actually assist you uh, in the process of physical activities such as swimming. Swimming Hints by Annette Kellerman, Wednesday, June 26, 1907. Any woman who can walk can learn to swim. Naturally, the matter of a costume arises first in the mind of a woman. The best costume is the cheap, ordinary stockinette suit, which clings close to the figure, and the closer the better. It should be sleeveless and there should be no skirts. Skirts carry water and retard the swimmer. They are very pretty and appropriate for the seaside, but not for the swimming pool. Stockings may be worn if they fit tightly, but under no circumstances should shoes be used. Eventually, she and her one-piece wool suit made their way to Boston, where, according to Kellerman, the reception was much chillier. So when she got there, the... The story goes uh, that her manager, James Sullivan, decided that she might do a few swims along the coast to attract publicity for the upcoming events at the Wonderland Amusement Park. And apparently she stripped down to a man's one-piece bathing suit, which was essentially sleeveless, round neck, uh, 
and would have come down to the mid-thigh, so therefore bearing her legs. Uh, and then she was surrounded by a crowd of onlookers who were either titillated or shocked by such a daring exhibitionism of a, of a woman on a public beach. Policemen appeared and yelled at her, demanding to know why she was in such a state of undress, and Cameron explained that she was going to undertake a three-mile swim along the beach. However, apparently she was arrested instead. That's really hard to believe. Yes, I'd like to offer a personal apology on behalf of the people of the United States to the Kellerman family. Well, that's really nice of you, Ed. But according to Schmidt, the story is most likely not true. Ah, knew it. (laughs) There's nothing in the papers around this time uh, that uh, can sort of confirm this arrest. And you would think if this had happened, it would have made the papers because it's fairly scandalous. Uh, and the earliest records of it are really sort of much decades later, and they're in personal accounts by Kellerman herself. So far as we can tell, America on the whole had a really positive reaction to Annette Kellerman, but I think it's really interesting that she remembers the American beach as kind of a backwards place. Buffalo Morning Express, Friday, November 8th, 1907. With au revoirs to friends who went to the pier to see her off, Miss Annette Kellerman, the young champion swimmer of the world, sailed on the Adriatic after six months' sojourn in this country. And as to American girls, the champion declared that she was surprised to find how few of them were given to swimming. Miss Kellerman deprecated this fact very much adding that it would be of vast good to the public generally, and to women in particular, if the newspapers would more persistently advocate that swimming be taught in the public schools as a compulsory lesson. I wonder what Annette Kellerman would think of American beaches now. Well, she would have had some trouble finding a wool bikini. (laughs) (laughs) I know just the place, Joanne. Oh, gosh. Today on Backstory, we're taking a trip to the seaside. We'll talk about the flood of European colonizers who came to the beaches of Florida and the indigenous people who lived there. We'll visit American children recuperating in seaside hospitals. And we'll talk about our own experiences of the beach as a weird, magical place. The state of Connecticut has 253 miles of coastline, but in the early 1970s, just seven miles of it were accessible to the public. That stark figure goes some way to explain why the state became the focus for a sometimes bitter political battle for access to a heavily restricted shoreline. The Greenwich Beach, restricted by local ordinance to residents and their guests, was invaded today by three dozen Hartford-area ghetto children and a handful of adults who call themselves the Revitalization Corps. Armed with a Supreme Court ruling that all the nation's beaches from the low water to the high water mark belong to everyone, the group staked its claim to a patch of sand. 
Its leader, Ned Cole, claims that out of 250 miles of shoreline in Connecticut alone, only six miles are open to the public. It's not just the Greenwich Beach you're talking about. You're talking about that whole shoreline where a small percentage of wealthy people control that shoreline and the average factory worker gets on the highway and tries to go to a Connecticut State Park on a Sunday afternoon and it closes very early, like on 4th of July, and he can't even bring his children in to use the shore, and that's wrong. Cole was issued a summons after some local... Spearheading the protest was Ned Cole, a radical young activist whose campaign to free the beaches combined political theater with provocative direct action. The tale is told in Andrew Carl's new book, Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. I asked Andrew how Connecticut's beaches had become so inaccessible in the first place. We began to see in the early 20th century, up and down the shoreline, developers who were creating these private beach associations, which were sort of a kind of a forerunner of the modern gated community. Groups of homeowners banded together and very much sort of, you know, restricted access to their beaches. They restricted membership on the basis of race and religion. You know, they often were governed by a racially restrictive covenants, and they were very explicit restricting access to their beaches to members only. Now, combined with uh, private beach associations, you had local town beaches that were really public in name only because many of these um, communities along the Connecticut coast restricted access to town beaches to residents only. And these communities oftentimes had their own um, discriminatory housing policies. So what would happen, let's say, if I wanted to just use the beach at a private beach? association? Well, as a white man, you might not have that big of a problem. Uh -huh. um, and in fact, one of the things that I found throughout this history was that these laws were often selectively enforced. They were on the books and could be certainly used in situations when an undesirable person or group was seeking to access a beach. They oftentimes could be ignored if, say, a person sort of fit the profile of the desired segment of the public um, that would be welcome there. The protagonist of your story is Ned Cole. Tell me a little bit about Ned Cole and how he became involved with beaches. Yeah, Ned Cole was um, a young Irish Catholic, um, recent college grad who in 1964 quit his job in an insurance company um, in Hartford, Connecticut, his hometown, and founded what came to be known as Revitalization Corps. He described it as a domestic peace corps. He said that he was waging a war on apathy, and he thought that the emergence of these all-white suburbs in places like you know East um, and West Hartford had a real damaging effect on white people. He understood on an instinctual level that the problem of racial inequality in America was a white person's problem. Many of whom saw themselves as open-minded, tolerant, racially liberal, yet in their day-to-day -day lives had very little contact with African-Americans, had a, a variety of structural barriers that sort of ensured that their communities would remain racially exclusionary. And so in the summer of 1971, he and the group of African-American mothers who he worked alongside decided to um, lead a bus trip down to the state shoreline to provide children, most of whom had never seen the ocean, who had never sort of, you know, really sort of ventured outside of the city much at all, uh, giving them an opportunity to enjoy what had become sort of a, you know, a rite of childhood for most Americans, you know, a day at the beach. When they got there, they discovered that there was nowhere they could go. And was that a shock to them? Did they just 
assume there was no planning in advance. They weren't trying necessarily to disrupt things. No, this did not originate as a protest. Ned kind of naively assumed initially that they would be welcome there, that towns would say, you know, welcome a a group of adorable young children um, with open arms who are seeking nothing more than to just um, enjoy a day at the beach. But um, that was certainly not the case. And what, in fact, happened when they arrived? There was a great deal of hostility. Local police were summoned. Then you also saw, after the fact, towns hastily met and tightened their beach access laws even further to make, you know, to ensure that this didn't happen again. Now, Cole goes on to capitalize on that reaction as a method of protest. Could you describe some of these protests? He quickly began to engage in very inventive and um, high-profile forms of protest. One of the sort of most um, inventive protest tactics he used was um, amphibious invasions of these very, you know, elite country clubs and private beaches along the shore, commanding boats and coming ashore and playing on the wet sand portion of the beach, which was their legal right, because legally, the wet sand portion of the um, shoreline was public property. Cole was issued a summons after some local residents accused members of his group of trespassing on private property on their way to the beach. Many of the townspeople were angry and outraged. So what are you going to do? Every time it's low tide, trudge in? Yeah, you we should, should have an access road to get to this beach because up to the high tide land. Really? You've got to feel sorry for the poor kids that you dragged with you. This you're just trying to get in because it's private. No, that's you got to make your little point. Here, the only people who have paid for the beaches are the citizens of Greenwich. So we feel that the beaches belong to the citizens of Greenwich. Given the ferment of the 1970s, given the movement to get rid of Jim Crow in the South, where does this leave the beaches today in Connecticut? A law student at Rutgers who in, in 1995 was jogging along um, the, the, the shoreline of Greenwich, Connecticut, and was stopped at the um, guardhouse and told he couldn't jog onto the beach. He sued the town of Greenwich and it was actually the first lawsuit filed against Greenwich um, over its resident-only beach um, ordinance. He won in 2001. The Connecticut Supreme Court struck down Greenwich's resident-only beach law on the basis of free speech, saying that you cannot sort of have um, public spaces that are um, restricted to one segment of the public. There are um, dozens um, of these um, beach associations, and they're um, as restrictive as ever. And, and public beaches remain, in a practical sense, very inaccessible. The one example I give, you know, Greenwich, actually, a non-resident can buy a beach pass, but they have to drive to the other side of town and purchase it at a city office building that is only open from 9 to 5 on weekdays. Was there anything particularly wise or stupid about picking beaches as one of the sites in which to carry this out. You know, we associate them with openness and freedom. And, you know, these are sort of quintessentially public spaces open to everyone. And yet in practice, they have been some of the most exclusionary spaces in America and places that have been hotly contested. And I think he identified the sort of contradictions there. Andrew Carl is an associate professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Virginia. Earlier in the show, we heard from Christine Schmidt, a research fellow at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia.
In the second half of the 19th century, Atlantic City, New Jersey became a popular destination for beachgoers looking to escape the city. Many of these tourists came from nearby Philadelphia. And they had noticed that when they brought their children there, their children just seemed particularly healthy and happy and robust. This is historian Megan Cernick. And they began to sort of think about how they could provide those same benefits to the, you know, many, many children who were sort of stuck in the city during the summer months. As in the city's poor and working class children who couldn't afford a trip to the beach. One of these socially conscious tourists came across a book by a French physician named André Brachard. Sea air and sea bathing for children and invalids. Brochard advocated for the healthful effects of oceanside retreats for children. Seeing every day the little ones bathing, walking on the sands, fishing or otherwise disporting themselves, breathing with delight the salt breezes which gave them strength and health, one thought more than once struck me vividly. There are physicians who have never seen the sea, living at a great distance from its shores. These are consequently ignorant of the resources which marine medication offers to the practitioner in the disorders of children. Inspired by Dr. Brochard, philanthropists decided to build a hospital to serve the city's poor and ailing children. The Children's Seashore House opened in Atlantic City in 1872. Mothers often accompanied their children to the sea, where they could receive treatment at a low cost. If they were in the main hospital building, a lot of times those children uh, would have more chronic conditions, such as uh, what would be referred to as non-pulmonary tuberculosis or surgical tuberculosis. So one of the peculiarities about children when they contract tuberculosis is that it doesn't, generally speaking, manifest itself in the lungs, but rather in the bones and in the joints, uh, in which case the children who would have tuberculosis would oftentimes have um, what they would refer to as sort of bone deformities, and children could be bent over, it could exist in their spines and in their hips. Rickets was another one, which at the time wasn't fully um, or understood in the same ways we understand it today, which would be a lack of vitamin D. And they were oftentimes coming with um, what was politely called summer complaint, um, which is also uh, known as diarrhea. Um, And so it was children who had really bad gastrointestinal disorders. Um, And those were really the children who were most vulnerable of uh, dying during the summer months when infant mortality in Philadelphia could reach upwards of about 25%. Well, I'd love for you to pick a specific child and describe him or her to us and take us through his or her day? Sure. So one of the few sources that I have that actually came directly from a parent was a woman who had um, written a thank you letter to this uh, Philadelphia Inquirer for publishing an article about the Children's Seashore House. And she wrote about how she um, had been desperately seeking treatment for her daughter because her daughter had rickets, and despite being three years old, she said that she was no larger than a six-month-old at the time and was unable to walk because of the disease. And despite her best efforts, no physician had been able to really help her. And so she wrote to the Children's Seashore House and asked for admission for her and her daughter, Amy. The physicians at the Seashore House 
told her to come down, and she took um, the train from the Wilkes-Barre-Scranton area. And during the day, for the most part, what would happen is that they would wake up in the morning. There would be medical rounds where the physician would go around and visit the children um, and see how they were doing after which they would then go out in the ocean and they would play. Depending upon the time period, there were more or less strict regimens about how frequently and how often children could sea bathe. Um, At least in the 1870s, they were very strict. They believed that being in the ocean for more than four minutes could result in horrible things happening to you. You could get headaches. You could faint. You could become profoundly dizzy. You could even die if you stayed in the ocean too long. This is um, even if you're healthy? Uh, yes, even if you're healthy. They they had um, actually in, on, in the book written by Brochard, he details it very specifically that there are three phases that swimmers and bathers go through. And uh, you wanted to sort of remove yourself before that third phase where you were sort of uh, losing all the benefits. Um, you wanted to remove yourself before that. So at least at one point in time, they had some very strict regimens. Those were eventually kind of loosened up. Um, but it was almost always done. The sea bathing was almost always done under the supervision of nurses to make sure that children were you know, bathing properly. For children who weren't able to walk themselves out into the ocean, they would actually have bathers who could carry the um, – they would be adult men who would carry the children out into the ocean, sometimes just in their arms. Sometimes they would have specially devised baskets or slings for children. And what um, were the specific benefits for children of, of these brief stints in the ocean? Um, one of the things that they found was that open wounds that were associated with tuberculosis uh, that they refer to as sinuses, those sinuses would actually close. And this was a problem that physicians and urban hospitals were really trying to solve, and they were coming up with all sorts of technological interventions, and um, they just had a really hard time figuring out how to successfully treat those wounds. And the conclusion ended up being that the benefits of sort of washing out those wounds with the saline water, the ocean water, really did help those uh, wounds heal successfully. The ocean also had the benefits of having children move more. So getting them physically active, getting them moving, which would you know, in turn, increase their metabolism, which is one of the sort of holistic benefits, really, of the time at the shore that people attribute it not only to the sea bathing, but also to the just the benefits of being in the ocean breezes. But really, for the most part, we, they, they would be doing a lot of the things that would have looked familiar to tourists while they were there. They were flying kites. They were building sandcastles. Um, there's lots of images of just children playing on the beach that looked very, very similar to other activities that children would have been partaking in, you know, on either side of the institution. As you've described it, um, certainly the Atlantic City Hospital was funded by people who were tourists themselves. So obviously, a large wave of tourism had already begun. But did this tourism, which only increased in volume, did it vie or did it sit in tension with um, the healthful purposes of these hospitals? Did did they become competitors, if you will? There was some tension that existed. Uh, as more tourists came, the original hospital building in Atlantic City had, was very near the center of town. And so buildings were being constructed around the hospital that were obstructing its breezes. And the physician, just in a single um, sort of note, said that the Tourists did not always appreciate having to view patients and sick patients on the beach while they were there on their vacations. And so they actually moved the hospital uh, pretty far down the beach 
Um, but I actually think that the hospitals served an important role within these communities to help maintain those longer standing associations between leisure and health when there was very much this um, this notion that maybe leisure wasn't totally acceptable yet, but health seeking was. Um, physicians published a lot of medical journal articles published from one another. They also published popular books. Uh, that really detailed just how healthy the seascape was for people, which all stood very much in stark contrast um, to the urban environment from which most people were coming. And I think within these places, certainly like Atlantic City, which very much promoted itself as a family-friendly environment, that having something like a seizure house where tourists could go and visit and remind themselves of those health practices that really underpinned their leisure practices was a beneficial reminder in some ways. Um, right. So it was almost an excuse for relaxing, but one that was acceptable to society. The health. Getting healthy would make you more productive in the long run. Absolutely. That's exactly what this was about. And even for children, the idea was sort of to be able to build up these children's bodies and strengths to be able to withstand the kind of forces of living in an urban city with the idea that they were going to be the future workers of America. There there does seem to be a a strong um, assumption that beaches are a healthy or healthful place uh, well into the 20th and 21st century. Uh, Would you agree with that? And do you think that has, if you do, you think that has anything to do with, um, you know, this, the seaside hospitals that you work on? I do. I think that um, a lot of these practices that really began in the 19th century remain with us as our sort of cultural traditions. Um, and certainly my family likes to tease me every time we go to the beach about how healthy they feel when they're down there. Um, and I I fully embrace that. So I think that it's one of those really fascinating things where I think people still feel it and people still sense it, but we've lost a language in which, a medical language in which we can really describe the impacts that we're feeling. And one of the things that I love and am intrigued by is that there is today within medical practice and especially pediatrics, a reemergence of attention to the myriad benefits that nature can provide. And there are a lot of really great scientific studies that are coming out now about um, the benefits of being out in both green space and what some medical geographers refer to as blue space, which is being near an ocean. So I think it's coming back in some ways. Megan Cernick is a historian at the University of Pennsylvania. Beaches were often the site of the first contact between indigenous people and European colonizers. When I was at the Organization of American Historians Conference, I interviewed Peter Ferdinando, who has studied a group who called themselves the ICE, spelled A-I-S. He says the ICE used the arrival of colonizers to grow their own sphere of control. And as he discovered, they weren't the only group waiting when the Europeans arrived. The founder of St. Augustine, Pedro Menendez, when he was wrecked on the Florida coast in 1571, it was at dawn 
that the Ulame, an ice-aligned group, came upon the shipwreck. And Jonathan Dickinson, a, a Philadelphia merchant, it, he recorded it's about eight or nine in the morning that, that the Hobe, another ice-aligned group, came onto the wreck. So they were well aware that on one of the frequent thunderstorm days in, in Florida, yes. there'd be ships driven ashore and you'd have to get there bright and early to control the scene. The early bird gets the worm sort of situation. Now, did they do some of that wrecking intentionally? That would be an interesting question that is not covered so much in the historical record. But when you get into the, the 1800s with the presence of Anglo-Americans in places like Key West, there were always these stories about how they, shall we say, encouraged ships to um, come onto the reefs and then assisted them by lightening the load and that material never seemed to get back to the ship once they were off the reef. In their daily checks of the shore, mm -hmm. they must have come across some survivors, no? Absolutely. How, how did that go? With any of these groups that are practicing, again, this indigenous wrecking process, one of the key things is controlling the scene. And this meant that they would either through actual violence or implied violence, stop the, the castaways from continuing to claim their own goods. The Native Americans were very concerned about what nation you were from. The, they asked the um, Dickinson castaways, are you English or Spanish? They asked the, um, the French castaways, are you English? And when the, the French castaways said, no, 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 we're French and we're good friends with the Spaniards, the Native Americans are fine. And they could never figure out what these issues were with the English. Well, English buccaneers based in the Bahamas are coming down to recover silver from a sunken ship in the Bahamas. And they are raiding the Florida coast to capture aquatically skilled Native Americans as captives to then force them to dive on the sunken Spanish treasure ship. And then a couple of years later, people who are aligned with the English in the Carolina colony are also riding down to capture um, Native American slaves for the Carolina slave market. And so you end up with a clear dislike of the English. But even <laughs> then, uh, you know, Dickinson survives his trip. Many of the other castaways from Iraq do. So their ferocious reputation as these man-eaters, as these cannibals, is very much just that. It's, it's the way they're able to control the scene. Um, there's a whole, there's an aspect in Dickinson where they surround the castaways. Uh, the Native Americans raise their, as Dickinson says, their large Spanish knives. And then they lower their large Spanish knives and say, can you please unlock all your containers and give us all your belongings? Um, and essentially, it's a display to make sure that the castaway is going to be compliant. And they do. They unlock their containers. They give over clothing and their money. And there we go. What are some of the sources you use to tell these truly fascinating stories? I actually use a number of sources because my interest in the ice crosses over the, the contact boundary. And for Florida, it would be 1513 with um, Ponce de Leon. But the ice's story starts significantly earlier. And so aspects of the work use archaeological artifacts. Essentially, I, I know more about shells and fish bones than you ever want to know. And then in the contact era, I continue to use archaeology because I look at the distribution of those metal goods especially. You probably didn't guess that I went to Ponce de Leon Junior High School in Carl Gables. Mm -hmm. 
and we were required to take Florida history. And I learned something about the Seminole Indians, but I never heard a word about the ice. Why is that? This work has kind of lain dormant because you've ha you have to look at the, the Spanish sources, the English sources, um, other Europeans, because you have to incorporate the archaeology, and ultimately because you need a Atlantic focus to truly bring this into a story that shows us, again, how Native Americans were not just people of the landscape, not just people who were going to vanish. My work on the ice in, in Rich from the Sea connects with a wider scope of what's called um, Red Atlantic, the study of native peoples in that wider Atlantic world. And this is something which has only been seen as a, uh, something to study for historians in the last decade or two. I confess that most of what I know about this topic comes from movies. And what you're describing to me sounds much, much more complex. Oh yes, the ice domain of influence includes negotiation with other native peoples in Florida, with the Spaniards in St. Augustine, and with passing European ships. This is a great example of the maritime indigenous agency, a chance for Native Americans to be active within what has in the past been viewed as the European colonial world. Spanish Florida remained 80% indigenous Florida, whether it was the Temuco missions along the north or the Calusa domain, especially in the southwest to the Florida Keys or the ice domain on the central east coast, where the Spaniards were off to the periphery. So it's a chance to reorientate our stories beyond ones of mere colonization, of conquest, of disappearance, of vanish, and rather focus on people who remained, who were active, and ultimately tell a far more interesting and engaging story. Peter, thanks so much for joining us on Backstory. Well, thank you, Brian. I really appreciate it. Peter Ferdinando is visiting lecturer at the Department of History at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Joanne, we've heard a lot about the history of beaches, but I want to know about your personal history with beaches. Wow, my personal history of beaches. Okay, well, it's kind of in two parts. So the first part was the non-existent beach <laughs> because I lived in Yorktown Heights, New York, in Westchester County, and I don't think we really ever went to the beach. I think I had a sense that beaches were magical places where you went and became amazingly suntanned and laid out on towels looking decadent. Uh, but we went to Sparkle Lake. <laughs> that, was, that was where we went in the summer. And I'm sorry, Sparkle Joanne, Lake, that's our next show. The Sparkle Lake, yes. <laughs> uh, it, it was just what it sounds like. It was a small lake. Um, but then when I was, um, I don't know, 14, 15, we moved to Los Angeles. And then all of a sudden beach sort of hit me in the face. It, the LA beach culture is so powerful and so distinctive. And to someone coming in from the outside, from Yorktown Heights, New York, kind of strange that, that it, you know, it didn't become necessarily less of a weird and magical space. It just became a differently weird and magical space with, you know, big hair and big tans and big sports and 
all these sort of mellow people shuffling around and lots and of tattoos. And where exactly did you fit into that scene? <laughs> Sitting on the sand with my friend with my eyes really big, staring all around, I think, was largely <laughs> what I was doing. <laughs> and and was it a native thing? I mean, was this very much the local culture or did people come from all over uh, to go to these beaches, Venice Beach or whatever? Oh, good question. I mean, I think it was both. M my sense when I was there was that it was mostly local people. Um, I mean, I, I know for sure that uh, when I was in high school, a lot of people <laughs> somehow or other ended up on the beach from high school. Um, so I think it was largely like Santa Monica beaches was was really where we were going. And yeah. um, it, it was a local area, but it was very much, you know, to me, a dramatic, big, sandy beach of a sort that I don't think I'd ever really seen before. And then, of course, Eastern Tennessee is famous for its beaches. So <laughs> you want to recall some of your earliest memories, encounters with Well, the I wasn't planning on being defensive, but I will have you know we have <laughs> lots of TVA lakes uh, that have what might be called beaches. Uh, and those were good for water skiing and things. But growing up, we were about... Uh, five to seven hours from Myrtle Beach. Wow. Uh, and oh, at, yeah. at, in my childhood, vacation and beach were the same thing. And there was just no, that's only place anybody would think of going on a vacation was to Myrtle Beach. The idea of going down to a motel and having actual seafood that had not been frozen uh, was a huge <laughs> deal. And of course, this is a generational thing. The idea was to get just as suntanned through as many intermediate stages of being burnt as you could <laughs> in as short a period of time. So you'd actually lather up with, you know, this coconut butter and stuff to intensify. Oil. the Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I would say that I was only marginally successful in ever gaining anything like a tan, but I was really good at the burning part. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, looking back on it, um, it was really the first generation of beach culture for the South. Um, hmm. And... When I was younger, they had this great beach music in the pavilion there at uh, Myrtle Beach. Do you folks remember the song, I'm a Girl Watcher? By Absolutely. The by the occasions, right? I'm I do a girl not. watcher. <laughs> I'm a girl watcher. That's pretty much. Go ahead, Joanne. Pick up from there. <laughs> Watching the girls go by. That's the entire lyrics. That's right. Wow. But that was wow. an example of the beach music, and I could— wasn't old enough to go inside, but I could stand outside and hear it. Archie Bell and the Drills, all this other great music. So it was magic for me. It was magic for me. That same word, magic. Yeah, and, and it's funny. In my childhood, uh, I never went on a vacation to the beach. That's because I lived near one. And so for me, the beach was a totally, totally different experience. It's where we kind of went half the time to laugh at these insane Northerners, including people from Canada, who would come down and go swimming in February in South Florida. <laughs> who would possibly go into the water? It was freezing. And, and to us, these folks were kind of freaks of nature. I mean, how could they possibly do this? The great irony in all of this, and I do confess, I've spent a lot of time around beaches uh, since living in Miami. I am now coming to you from Nova Scotia, and I rode out to a beach today. 
So I rode out to Sandower Island, and it was really interesting because, you know, as we discuss on the show, Americans have tried to privatize beaches. Americans have segregated beaches. But here is a completely public island, yet it was the most private beach experience I've ever had. Hmm. And so my takeaway from my rowing trip and just thinking back on my experience with beaches is kind of beaches are us. Beaches are, you know, what we put into them and what we make of them. And boy, do we make a wide range of things out of our beaches. It's all a bunch of sand. It's a meeting point of peoples, right? It's a meeting point of people coming by sea and by land. It's a meeting point or not a meeting point of different kinds of peoples. Uh, It's a meeting point of of people from far away and locals, which we all kind of talked about. It's a place where all kinds of people come for all kinds of reasons. And some of them are extreme, right? I mean, if it's leisure, it's like really leisure. It's it's people lying down for a long period of time. Uh, Or if it's trade, you know, it's very aggressive. That's the sort of point where, (laughs) you know, trade comes in, profit is made or not made. So... They'll pull that beach chair right out. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, I don't want to be the one to state the obvious and the embarrassing, but it's also the place where people are as lightly clad as you are likely to confront people in any other setting. Uh, That is true. And I seem to have memories of that being uh, an interesting aspect of going to the beach. Uh, And so it's suddenly not only is there this diversity of people there for a diversity of reasons, but suddenly they are shorn of a lot of the Shielding (laughs) that they have Hmm. and the identity. So you can't really tell if somebody uh, is from nearby or far away, except maybe by uh, their truck driver's tan, as we called it, you know, just the white shoulders and and tanned arms. If they're going in the water in February, they're from far away in Miami. Well, and in South Carolina, they would have been taken to the hospital for hypothermia. But I, I think it is that combination of you no know, land meeting ocean, but also yes. of people of all different backgrounds without the usual markers firmly displayed. Um, and I think we use the word magic because we're kind of optimistic, but it's also kind of dangerous. You know, I mean, you have to be people were different degrees of comfort of revealing themselves to all these strangers. Uh, and I think that adds a certain thrill to the moment as well. And the landscape itself is actually in transition. I mean, one of the things that we know about beaches is they're constantly changing as much as we're trying to nail them down and wall them off and claim that there are private property, et cetera. Beaches themselves are incredibly changing objects. And we know at high tide, they're often not there at all. And in in modern times, I mean, people are going to the beach for either one, whatever reason, for, for leisure. As Ed just said, um, they are largely scantily clad. Uh, and not only does that make it dangerous, but it, it's sort of enforced intimacy, right? You're, you're suddenly seeing people in a way that you would never see them otherwise. And you're closer up to them if you're all on the same beach than you might be otherwise. So it, 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 it be, well, I guess comes back to magical um, it becomes a different kind of space than many other kinds of spaces. Yeah, that's a really good point, Joanne. Can you pass the tanning oil? <laughs> <laughs> Here you go, Ed. Thank 
That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org or send an email to backstoryatvirginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by David Stenhouse, Nina Ernest, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Anjali Bishash, Sam Blumstein, Hana Cho, Emma Gregg, and Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Hoddington Bear, and Jazar. Special thanks this week to our voice actors from the Annette Kellerman segment, Jamal Milner, James Scales, Brendan Wolf, and Lydia Lang. Thanks, too, as always, to the Johns Hopkins Studios in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.